And before we dive into the text and the sermon this morning, I uh, just want to reflect on uh, how wonderful it is that uh, on this that we get to begin our year in 2024, not 2023, with not only a baptism but also taking the Lord's Supper together, and uh, and the preaching of the Word as we do every week. So it's just a wonderful thing uh, for our church to begin that way. I, I looked. Uh, I showed Alexis this morning the baptism record that we have. I told her, you know, this church has been here a long time. We have a bunch of records that aren't in this book. They're in other books. I said, but this one's 50 years old. In fact, I think it started in 1978. So in just a few years, that baptism book, which is the one that we still have people signing in now, is already 50 years old. You know, and I showed her where she could sign. And the last baptism before this Sunday was over two years ago. And it's a reminder for us, like uh, Janie, to be on mission with our families and our friends and our neighbors, and, uh, and to the family of Alexis that are here this morning, uh, we hope that you're encouraged by uh, your daughter, your sister, your niece, whatever she may be to you, your granddaughter's faith, and uh, would see this as an opportunity maybe to look and pause and reflect on your own faith, Right? And I hope that's what we all do this morning is we look uh, to the future and we look forward to what God uh, might do here. And we pray and we leave it to him because we do believe that God has a plan for us and for our church and we trust him for it. Now as we look to Matthew chapter 2, it strikes me that this is an old story that only makes sense if you know an even older story. And it has always been the case, I think in basically every culture, that we value what is new and what seems relevant. It wasn't long ago when uh, the counterculture might have been hippies or skateboarders, those who would be in the counterculture, maybe dyed their hair or had pierced their nose or you know, wore graffiti t-shirts or whatever it may be. Uh, they shirked the traditions of their parents, and maybe didn't get married as early, maybe waited longer, all those things. And they were fighting for relevancy. Uh, to be relevant is really to be with the culture or just one step ahead of it. If you're any farther ahead of it, uh, you aren't actually relevant. You might be one day, but you're not yet. And when we look at our culture today, I've heard several people comment on this, the counterculture isn't what it used to be. Uh, the counterculture looks like getting married or remaining celibate if you stay single, having children, maybe buying or renting a home that you take care of, starting a career, looks like attending church and believing the stuff that's said in it and getting baptized. Really, to be countercultural in our day and age looks like acting like your grandparents or your great-grandparents. And if you're, you know, millennial or Gen Z, you can look online and you can see all these millennial and Gen Z people. They're trying to buy land off somewhere and, and have a little cottage in the woods. They're wanting to be their grandparents and their great-grandparents, which tells you that's a, probably part of the reason that grandkids get along a little bit better sometimes with their grandparents than their own parents. We always rebel against the ones that we came from, I guess. 
But here as we look at this text, we find uh, that we're in a service in which a lot of people might think we're wasting our time. We're coming here to open up a book that the newest stuff in it's nearly 2,000 years old. And we're talking about it like it means anything for our lives today. That, that seems really irrelevant to our culture. And, and if, you, if you're looking at it on a screen, that's one thing. But if you're looking at it with an old paper book, then you're definitely irrelevant, right? But here we look and we see that in order to understand why this old story is relevant to us today, not in the way of chasing fads or trying to be popular, but truly meaningful for our lives today, maybe it would help to know an even older story. You may have heard of a man named Jacob. He's famous for having his name changed by God to Israel. I'm sure you've heard that name, and you've probably heard it more in recent months. Israel, or Jacob, had a son named Joseph. Joseph was one of his 12 sons. He was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, which I'm not going to get into very much this morning. Uh, but if you're, if you're having to choose favorites because there is more than one, I think there's probably a problem, but a different sermon for a different day. And so Joseph had, among his two favorite sons, he was the firstborn. Now Joseph was interesting because Joseph had dreams. And he had dreams that seemed to make him think that his brothers and even his father would come and bow down before him. This kind of bothered his brothers, especially because he was already the favorite, and they didn't quite like that. So Joseph's dreaming about these things actually led him to be taken by his brothers and sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt. And the story progresses. Joseph had some hard times there. He had some good times there. And it ended up that Joseph became second in command only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And, lo and behold, a famine came to the land, one that Joseph had interpreted a dream about. A famine came to the land, and his brothers show up. And the long story short is his brothers and his father come back and actually live in Egypt during the famine. And they actually get stuck there, kind of. They just keep living there. But one day, after Joseph was dead and gone, and many of his brothers, actually all of his brothers were dead and gone, and many of their children were dead and gone, and the Pharaoh that treated Joseph so well was dead and gone. A new Pharaoh came into power, and he was worried because the Jewish people, the Hebrew children there, were being fruitful and multiplying. There was too many of them, he thought. So he decided to put them into slavery in order to quelch them, in order to contain them and control them. Problem? They continue to be fruitful and multiply. Now he didn't just have an enslaved people, he had a growing number of enslaved people which isn't necessarily what you want if you're Pharaoh in this situation. So what does he do? He tells the midwives, we don't know if they were Jewish or if they were Egyptian, but he tells the midwives who would help the babies be delivered that when a male Hebrew child is born, they are to take him and kill him in order to contain this population. I hate to say, and I'm not going to get into this, but I hate to say that even in our own country we've seen practices just like this. Now, the midwives kind of, they're righteous and they don't do this. They say, oh, well, the Hebrew women are so resilient. They, they give birth before we can even show up. And, and we can't do it. Sorry, you know. So then he commands that the male children will be sent, will be 
put into the Nile River. And that's how he's going to deal with the problem. It reminds me of the Christmas carol when Ebenezer Scrooge says, you know, to deal with the surplus population. That's somehow somewhat what Pharaoh is doing here. Lo and behold, one day, a child is born. And when he gets too big to hide, the mother puts him in a basket and sends him down the river. And he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. And she takes him. She names him Moses and raises him in her home. Now, again, I'm kind of skipping a lot of important parts here. But what ends up happening is Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh. And he ends up running away after he does some things he shouldn't do. But eventually, God speaks to him. And God calls him and tells him, you were to go back to Pharaoh. And you are to confront Pharaoh about enslaving my people. Eventually, that happens. And what ends up happening is, through Moses, God leads his people out of Egypt. This is what's called the Exodus. And you may have seen a movie by that name 50, 60, 70 years ago. I'm trying to think. Maybe even longer ago now. I don't know. No, not that long. And this is the Exodus. This is the exit from Egypt. Now, why is all that important? Let's go back to this story that is old, but not as old as that story. A story that occurs some thousand years later. When a child is born in Bethlehem named Jesus. So we look at chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, referring to the wise men we had talked about a few weeks ago, the, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, we need to pause here and say, if we go back to Matthew chapter 1 and we look at the genealogy, who is Joseph's father? Jacob. Not the Jacob from a thousand years before, but a different Jacob. And we have Joseph, son of Jacob, who has dreams. We've already talked about that when we looked at the end of Matthew chapter 1. He, gets, he has these dreams where God speaks to him. Now we have a new Joseph who is, who is the son of Jacob, like the one before, He has dreams that speak to him. And what does he do? He goes to Egypt. His dreams send him to Egypt. Now, he didn't have to have 11, well, actually, really 10 brothers send him off to Egypt and make some money off of him. But he had a dream that led him to Egypt. And there they are. It says, He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, Herod being the king of this area of Judea. It says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a reference to the book of Hosea. And Hosea is referencing the Exodus. If you go read Hosea, it doesn't sound like Hosea is talking about something that's going to happen in the future. It sounds like something that happened in the past. God called his child, Israel, out of Egypt. But here, Matthew says, no, 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 no. This isn't just about that. This is about Jesus. He was sent into Egypt, and now he's being called out of Egypt. It says in verse 16, here's what happens while Jesus is in Egypt. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. We have here Herod, not being a very good king. You know, good kings don't kill their citizens. Good kings protect their citizens at all costs, but Herod is only in the business of protecting himself and preserving himself and maintaining his kingly rule. So he does something so wicked that today we can hardly imagine it. He says to commit murders, multiple children. Now, to be truthful, maybe this was only a few dozen children. Bethlehem wasn't a big place. But that doesn't really matter, does it? It's evil. And and in our culture, we like to nuance things and find the gray area. Um, This is actually a developmental school. I was reading about uh, children's development uh, because I was reading a book on children's ministry. And he goes through some children's development. He says as they get older, around uh, upper or primary uh, elementary age, they begin to find gray area. It's no longer black and white. They find this gray area. We really like gray areas. Uh, We thrive sometimes in gray areas. It's really nice not to see things black and white. Listen, there is no world in which the murder of children is anything but wrong, anything but evil. Herod's not the good guy. Never was. Not only is he a bad guy to other people, the story goes that as his kingdom went on before he died, he put to death a wife, several of his own children, because he was so hungry for power and so threatened by even his own family. Wickedness is all that it is. But here we have Matthew connecting it to the prophet Jeremiah. Rachel, referring to the mother of Israel, or the mother of Israel's children, weeping with loud lamentation for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This was in Jeremiah a reference to the exile. We've already talked about the exodus. The Jewish people saw the exodus as their climactic event, as the main event of their history. It'd be like Christians today. We look back at the cross. We say that is the climax. The death and resurrection of Jesus is it. Well, for the Jewish people before the coming of Jesus, that's what the Exodus was. It was it. It was was the perfect example of how God saves his people, how he delivers them, how he brings them out of captivity and slavery. But they connected it often to a later event, which was the exile of the Jewish people. That they were dragged away by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And here we have this connection again with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 that the event of Jesus going into Egypt and out of Egypt is an event of Jesus redoing in his own life the exodus, but also redoing a return from exile. And what does all this amount to? It says in verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." Just pause and reflect on the amount of faith that Joseph had in listening to these dreams and believing them. 
He probably walked around in the community he was in. There was a Jewish community in Egypt at this time. He probably walked around and said, okay, guys, we're going home. We'll see you later. They're like, why are you, are you, you said it wasn't safe there. Oh, well, I had a dream last night that Herod's dead, so we're going to go back. Oh, you had a dream, great. Maybe just send a letter, wait to hear back from them. But no, Joseph just goes on. Yeah, we had this dream from the Lord. He got us here to safety. After we came here, we heard that Herod was doing these evil things. So we're going to trust that this dream is from God in return. So he rose again and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. In verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, this was good. This is very good that Joseph was afraid and that he listened to this dream. Because what we learn about Herod's son who took over in Judea is that he was worse than his father. His father was called Herod the Great. Archelaus was Herod without the Great. He didn't do anything good for anybody and was just a terrible king. He He was so bad, in fact, that the Jewish people went to Rome and begged them, please replace him. And what they were willing to take instead was a governor appointed by Rome rather than this king from among their own ranks. That's how bad this guy was. So what does Joseph do in verse 23? He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. It may be worth noting uh, you know, I've heard some preachers emphasize that Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, now they do this, they say, because in Scripture, Jesus says there are many who will come in his name. And he wants to clarify, it's not just Jesus who claims to be the Christ, it's Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. And here we have the story of Jesus and his origin into this world, kind of, in some ways, wrapped up at this point, as a child at least. Because now he is in Nazareth. He starts in Bethlehem fulfilling one prophecy and ends up in Nazareth fulfilling another. And in between, there's a lot, again, as we've seen even here, fulfilling prophecy. Now, what's the point of all this? We talked about an old, old story. We talked about an old story. So what's the point for us today? We need to acknowledge that throughout this, Jesus is living out in his own life the story of Israel. He is showing himself to be the true Israel. But the difference is, instead of going in the wilderness and complaining, instead of going in the wilderness and being tempted and sinning, instead of going on throughout history, we we go past the wilderness, we go to Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and so on. He does what Israel should have been doing. He is who Israel should have been, a light to the nations a savior to the world. And so as Jesus lives out the story of Israel, he is showing that he is the one who, like Moses, but even better this time, will lead his people from slavery and exile. But instead of just being a mouthpiece for God or a set of arms to hold up a staff for God, Jesus himself will not only be a man sent by God, he will be God himself come to man. He will be the God-man who comes to save his people from their sin. And he will not save just the Jewish people. The thing is, we misread the Old Testament when we think it's a story of God picking one family and one group of people and then ignoring the rest until Jesus comes. The picture was that God chose a family and a people 
to spread his image across the face of the earth, to spread his glory and goodness across the face of the earth. They failed. Because when we are apart from God, we will fail. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to conquer where we failed, to bring victory where there was a loss, and to send his spirit to dwell in us. Not just to have a good, but to empower us to go and do what Christ has done, to live like Christ in this world. We often forget that. We tell the story, Jesus forgave me for my sin, now I'm good. I can go to heaven, I don't have to go to hell. We forget the whole part where Jesus said, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. We forget the part where he says, I'm sending my spirit to dwell in you, and it will be better for my spirit to dwell in you than for me to stand next to you. We forget the part where we are empowered and given power to go and live like Christ in this world. Our prayer should be, Lord, lead us more. Lord, use your spirit to help us be who you want us to be. Instead of just gritting our teeth, trying to fight our sin on our own, trying to get through life on our own, instead we should rely on the spirit that empowers us. We also see in Matthew chapter 1, through the genealogy of Jesus and his adoption by Joseph, son of David, that he is the son of David, and therefore he is the prophesied and promised king. Herod the Great was not a son of David. His sons were not sons of David. They could not be the king who was meant to rule on the throne forever, but Jesus is the son of David, and he was certainly that son And so he is a truer king and a better king and an everlasting king where Herod failed, where Herod was in the wrong. But instead, because he is a truer and better king, instead of oppressing people, instead of lording it over people, Jesus comes to free people, to free them from the slavery they find themselves in, to free them from the oppression that they face, to free them from their very selves existing apart from God. And when he frees us, he frees us into a family called the church. He frees us to a people that have been redeemed. This is one of the great things about baptism, since we had a baptism this morning. It's not just an individual saying, I love Jesus and I want everyone to know it. It is that, but it's also a church coming around someone and saying, We hear your profession of faith, and to the best of our knowledge, you are our brother in Christ, you are our sister in Christ, and we expect to spend eternity with you praising this God. And in the meantime, we want to come around you as a church and be your family now. One of the things that was fun with Alexis was, as we were talking through this and leading up to it, I told her... When she was saying that, you know, that she believed in Jesus, that he was the son of God, that he had died for her, all those things. I told her, I said, well, now I'm your brother. And I said, and your Mimi, your grandmother, is your sister. She's your Mimi and she's your sister. That's how things work in this, this world. Your father can become your brother and your grandmother can become your sister. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That through that blood, this is where the, the ties that bind us are greater than anything else we see in this world. So ultimately, what do we do with this information? That Jesus is the one who frees us from sin and slavery to ourselves 
Jesus is the king that will rule better than any other king. He rules for our benefit. He said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. What do we do with his information? We say, I don't want to live a life of slavery to sin. And listen, just for a moment, if you're not a Christian, we need to acknowledge something. When we talk about sin in the culture, we talk about mistakes and failures. We don't often acknowledge what slavery to sin is. If you are a non-Christian, your experience, like many Christians still, is that sin has power. Sin is coming after you. Sin is not something you always want to be. Now, sometimes you want to do it, but other times you don't. And yet you find yourself again and 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 again falling to the sin, letting it have control. The only way to free yourself from that predicament, it's not to get a meditation app on your phone. It's not to join a Facebook group of really fun people who like the same hobby as you, or maybe who just like to give free stuff to each other. I know a lot of people like those Facebook groups. It's not any of those things. What frees us from this problem is Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross in your place, taking the penalty of sin, that he was raised from the dead, showing that one day death will be no more, that he has already defeated it, and when he returns, he will defeat it fully and finally, and that in the meantime, as he ascends to heaven, he sends his spirit to dwell in us, those of us who have been redeemed, those who have repented from their sins and trusted in faith in Christ. We need to receive Jesus. We need to turn away from our sins and trust in Jesus. And listen here, some of you have been Christians for longer than I've been alive by actually a lot. And yet every day you still have to repent, turn away from your sin, and every day you still have to trust in Jesus, just like you did all those years ago, and just like I did all those years ago. And if you have stopped to do that, you ought to pause and consider exactly why. Because it is the call of Christ to continually turn away from the kingdoms of this world and the sin that we are enslaved to and turn with trust in Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his spirit that has come to change our lives. Let us pray this morning.